John 5, verse 15, says, The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. <clears throat> Excuse me. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them and said, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do, for whatever he does, the son does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son, that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And father, we humbly ask as we stand here before you, Lord, in a sense, giving you our attention, that it would just cause our hearts to be attentive to you, that we might receive what you would speak to us from your word by your spirit's ministry this morning. Lord, prepare us accordingly and speak to us now by your Holy Spirit in a personal and direct way, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Now, can you see or tell perhaps right now how God is at work among your life? Maybe as you look at your life or what's going on in your life, I would say this, even if perhaps you can't recognize what he's doing, it doesn't diminish the fact that he is always at work in some way. And I think really that becomes one of the main lessons that Jesus in our passage in front of us is trying to convey this morning. The backdrop to what we're looking at is important. We looked at it last time in our study in John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14 or so. There in that section, remember, Jesus has just done an incredible miracle by the power of God in the life of this man there at the pool of Bethesda who had been lame or paralyzed for 38 years. For 38 years, this man was in a condition that he could not change. And in one instant, in one hour, Jesus said, do you want to be made well? And it says that Jesus commanded him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well from that very hour. His life was transformed and changed. Was the result of that, we then saw in verses 10 through 13, that the Jewish religious leaders, instead of rejoicing, over this miracle of God and how this man had been made well after 38 years in this paralyzed condition, rather than rejoicing in the miracle of God, they were bothered and irritated because this man was then, in a sense, breaking, if you would, their traditional interpretation of the Sabbath day because they caught him, remember, carrying around his bedroll as he was walking around afterwards and they became angered and bothered by this and in a sense began to interrogate him saying to him, hey, who told you to carry around your bedroll? You're breaking our traditional interpretation, if you would, of the Sabbath and they wanted to know who told you to carry around your bed? What are you doing? 
And at that moment, the man didn't have an answer. But then verse 14, we saw as we closed, Jesus found that very man he had healed in the temple, revealed himself to the man, gave him a spiritual challenge to no longer live in sin, but to live a life serving God. Which brings us now to the 15th verse as it continues on telling us verse 15, the man then departed that is from the temple where Jesus met him, this healed man, and he went and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So he now goes and reports back to the Jewish religious leaders who probably were interrogating him of who told him about this and why he had the right to carry his mat around on the Sabbath day. And this man, it says, tells them that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, I just, I love that phrase that stuck out to me this week. Jesus who had made him well. You know, when you have had a personal encounter with Jesus in a really powerful way where Jesus has changed your life, where he has helped you become better from a condition that you know that you were once in, uh, you know, it's kind of really hard, is it not, to ignore or deny the fact of what Jesus has done for you. It's really hard not to, to be very open about that. I love just the way that it reads there. This man knew that it was Jesus who had made him well. He knew how it happened and he knew who it was that had caused it to come to pass, that it was Jesus that made him well. You know, when the Lord does a work in your life, you know that it was nothing that you did. It was nothing that anyone else did. You know, it was the Lord who made you different. You know, it was the Lord who changed you or powerfully worked in your life. And this, therefore, man being somewhat appreciative and I think unashamed, he now goes back, verse 15 tells us, and reports to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Well, of course, verse 16, they now get their answer, the culprit in this situation. It says, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. So upon hearing that Jesus is the one responsible for this man's miracle and for his life change, and in connection with that, that Jesus was the one who instructed him that day to rise, pick up his mat, which represented his old life, and to walk. Upon hearing that Jesus was the culprit, the Jews, we see here, verse 16, are enraged. Not only because of what Jesus had done, but because he had given this man the instruction to pick up his mat and walk. And not only did they begin to persecute Jesus, it says here, with harsh mistreatment, but verse 16, look at it, it says, they actually saw this now as grounds worthy of killing Jesus, that he deserved to be put to death because of these events that had transpired. The reason, look at it there, verse 16, it's key, because Jesus had done these things, this is the key on The Sabbath, the Sabbath, that is that day that God had given to the Jewish people as a day of rest and refreshment to spend time in worship with God and to refrain from their regular work. However, we know by this point in time, historically in the days of Christ, the Jewish religious establishment, the leaders of Israel, they had at this point created such an extensive list of volumes of prohibitions of what you could not do on the Sabbath day regarding, listen, their traditional interpretation of what the Sabbath day meant. 
And we read later in our verses there in verse 18 that Jesus broke the Sabbath. He didn't break the Sabbath technically. He broke their traditional interpretation of what the Sabbath day therefore meant. And because they had created these volumes of prohibitions, multitudes of restrictions that had to be adhered to on that day, unless you uh, were to violate the Sabbath rest, if you would, or the Sabbath day, rather than the Sabbath day being a gift from God, which was a day where man could enjoy rest and refreshment, instead it almost became, in the people's mind, the common people, almost like a burden and a curse from God. Because it had so many rules and restrictions and requirements, they had turned the day into a major burden that was a difficult and somewhat tiring thing to observe. To try and observe the Sabbath day with all of its rules and restrictions, it literally, listen, it literally exhausted the people. It exhausted them just trying to keep all the religious requirements to remember and observe. Okay, what can't you do? If I do this, I broke it. If I do that, I broke it. If I do, and it became an exhausting process trying to observe the Sabbath day of what you could not do on that day. Now, and here's what's interesting to me before we move on. Though it was wrong, isn't it interesting, verse 16, though it's wrong for Jesus to perform a miracle and to help and heal somebody's life, and though it was so wrong for this man to pick up his bed mat of his old paralyzed life and go walking on to the new life God had, apparently it's okay to verbally attack, persecute, and plot people's murders on the Sabbath. It's somewhat interesting, isn't it, how that works? I can't help but to say, wow, isn't it amazing how people's die-hard adherence to religious tradition and religious rule-keeping, how it actually kind of blinds people? to spiritual reality and what really does matter to the heart of God like showing love to people and helping people and obeying Jesus it's amazing how that harmful effect can happen and we see it here well apparently they must have it seems verbally persecuted and even challenged Jesus for his violation of their Sabbath tradition because verse 17 says Jesus answered them the religious leaders among the Jews saying my father has been working until now and I have been working. So Jesus indicates here, verse 17, that the Father in heaven has always been at work and therefore he's saying that is why, though you're upset with me, he's saying that is why I have as well continued to work as my Father does. Do you see the language there? Look at it again, verse 17. He says, my Father has been working till now. What Jesus is saying there is this, is the Father in heaven has never completely ceased from work altogether. There has never been a time where the Father has not somewhat continued to work. The Father in heaven is always at work among his creation because he is God. Now, now let me explain what, what Jesus is inferring here. Consider this in connection with the Sabbath observance. Let me read to you, listen, from Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11, the Sabbath observance instruction. It says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son or daughter, your male servant or female servant, your cattle, your stranger within your gates. And then it says this, For in six days... The Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. And he rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So 
As God gave the Sabbath day observance to the Jews, and it was something that was a covenant between God and the people of Israel, as God gave the Sabbath observance to the Jews, it was given to them with a specific pattern and reasoning in mind. That pattern and reasoning is the basis for the Sabbath day. God says, for in six days, the Lord created the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested from his work. Now, that being said, we need to remember God himself, what that's telling us in the original work of creation In the week of creation, the Bible tells us that on the seventh day, God ceased and rested. However, please be careful. That does not mean that God ceased from work altogether. What God ceased from and rested from was his creative works. From all the works of creation he was doing. We have to be very honest. God could not just cease from his work altogether or everything he created in the first six days would have fallen apart. God was continuing to work in the seventh day by sustaining and upholding all things in the universe. We have to remember everything that exists in life and in the universe is being upheld and is dependent upon God's work to survive and operate correctly. So God on the seventh day was not doing the work of creating, but God on the seventh day, Jesus is saying the Father has always been working. He was even working then, functioning, if you would, to keep everything operating orderly and correctly that needed his sustainment. For example, God was still working on the seventh day, keeping gravity in effect on earth. And I bet Adam and Eve and all the animals greatly appreciated that. Or they would have went blasting off of the planet. God was still at work controlling the ocean tides and all of creation, making it function orderly. He was keeping the solar system and everything that's a part of it functioning in an orderly way so things weren't banging into each other or crashing into the earth. God was at work keeping Adam and Eve's involuntary organs operating still, their lungs breathing, their heart beating, or else they would have died if God was not still at work. The point that Jesus is trying to convey here is that because God, his Father, has always been working until now continually, he, therefore, has been working alongside of his Father in partnership and harmony, indicating that Jesus is God because he's operating as God in the flesh and can't cease to be who he is as God and God by nature of his love and care for his creation and people is always working. That's why Jesus says, my father has been working until now and that's why I've been working because I'm one with the father. Now I look at this this morning and I think to myself, man, what a great thing to realize. Even when we are resting and we all need a measure of rest. Rest is just as sacred and spiritual as working at times. And even when we're all resting and being refreshed, isn't it wonderful to know that the Lord, the father and the son are always at work for our good? that they are still always at work. How helpful to realize that we don't have to strive or overwork in stress, but we can actually kind of just be at rest. We can do our best and just commit the rest and we can know and be assured that God is at work keeping things under control. He's causing things to work together for our good. What a wonderful thing to know, hey, the Father and the Son are always at work on my behalf. They're always at work. 
It tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. This morning, you're concerned about how's this going to work? How's that going to work? I got to work that out. And the reality is, is God is saying, look, I am causing all things happening to you, things that you do, things that you forget to do, things that others don't do. I'm causing all things to work together according to the counsel of my will. I'm at work. My will is going to be done. It tells us as well in Philippians 1.6 regarding our own Christian lives, being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. How wonderful to know that the Father and the Son are always at work. Well, as they heard Jesus say that he and his Father have been working together until now, you can imagine the response to that. Look at verse 18. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath in their minds, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now, breaking their traditional interpretation of the Sabbath was not enough to upset them. Jesus' direct claim of deity, that he is God and one with the Father in heaven, that enraged them all the more, it says now. They become all the more inflamed with anger and want to kill Jesus even more because having heard him call God, take notice, not the Father in heaven. He didn't say the Father in heaven is always working. But if you look at verse 17, he said, my Father in heaven, my Father. Now, when they heard Jesus say that, they understood exactly what he meant by that claim and declaration. It says right here in the Bible for us in verse 18 that they realized that Jesus was saying that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. They understood that he was making a claim of deity, that he was claiming to be one with God or to be God. And this is just one of many times in the Bible, in the Gospels, where Jesus made proclamations and declared openly that he indeed was God in the flesh. Not just a man sent from God, not just someone anointed by God or used by God, but that he was actually God who became a man. God who became man, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, God the Son, fully equal with God the Father. Listen, this morning, let me say this and please hear me. It is both wrong and really it is very naive to say that Jesus Christ never claimed to be God. And there are those who will say that. That is naive. Jesus unapologetically, numerous times, claimed that he was God. He claimed it clearly. He's claiming it here. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. In chapter 14, he's going to claim again directly that he is God. Even Jesus' enemies, what I want you to see, you see how mad they are in verse 18? Even Jesus' enemies during his earthly life knew that he was claiming to be God. Because that was what upset them so much about Jesus that he would state that God was his father. He was one with God. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ was God living among us on this earth in the body and the flesh of a man revealing himself to mankind that we might know what God is really like and fulfilling a purpose for a set time to redeem us from our sins 
and provide us the opportunity to have eternal life. So Jesus, rather than apologize for claiming he was equal with God, what he's going to do as we go on now in our verses this morning is give further evidence and further explanation of the various ways he is indeed God and equal with the Father in heaven. Look at verse 19. It says, Jesus then answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. The first thing that Jesus speaks of here, we can see, is Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in their divine works. He claims to be equal with God in their divine works. Jesus says there, verse 19, that the Son can do nothing of himself. And when Jesus says that the Son can do nothing of himself, he does not mean that the Son is powerless and that he's weak and that he's unable to perform miracles or, or do works of God because Jesus was God. That's not what he's saying, that I can't do anything, I don't have the power. What he is saying there, the Son can do nothing of himself. He's declaring he cannot do anything independent of the Father's involvement. He would not do something of himself because him and the Father are one. So he would not do something of himself. Jesus did everything in complete cooperation with the Father in heaven as one, and he would not act on his own without his Father's involvement. Without his father's leading and partnership, Jesus purposely operated in direct cooperation with God the Father. And as the Son, as a part of the Trinity, as the Son, like a son should, he chose to function while on earth in submission to his Father's direction and authority in his life, in all things, and to fulfill his will. So Jesus never acted independently, he's telling us. He never acted independently, but always cooperatively with his Father in heaven. That's why Jesus says here in our verses, for whatever he sees the Father do and whatever the Father does, the Son also does in like manner. Jesus is conveying this reality that in his human body as a man, he performed the will of God on earth and for a time was acting, if you would, as the representative of God among mankind so therefore jesus's works jesus's miracles the things that jesus said the teachings that jesus gave all of his ministry was god's activity happening among this earth in the body of a man in the form of his son jesus christ and that happened through a process of continual revelation between the father and jesus look at verse 20 there jesus says for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. In other words, Jesus is saying there was this ongoing process where the Father and the Son being in a relationship of love, being one, where the Father would reveal and show things to Jesus indicating what they were to be doing on the earth during the time of his earthly ministry. So the Father was continuously showing things to Jesus and Jesus would see and he would sense, if you would, what the Father was wanting to do and then they would perform it together in cooperation. 
So day by day and hour by hour, Jesus lived in this perfect harmony in his relationship with his Father in heaven and, and would sense what the Father was wanting to say to someone. Or he would see what the Father was wanting to do. And so he lived and operated and ministered in that way where the Father would reveal things. Son, this is what we're going to do next. And, and I want you to say this to this individual. I want you to speak in this way to this crowd. I want you to share these truths about the kingdom of God. So there was this revelation and cooperation between the Father and Son. And Jesus never acted independently. And... And for you and I this morning, as followers of Jesus now today who have been brought into a relationship with God through a relationship with Jesus Christ and now the Spirit of Jesus Christ living inside you and I as Christians, how awesome to think about the reality that to some degree that same experience can kind of be ours as a Christian. That there can be this cooperative experience between the Father and His Son Jesus Christ and our lives, meaning this by way of application. We as Christians should never seek to do anything independent of God. We should never seek to do anything independent of God's involvement, of God's leading. But instead, I should want to say, Lord, I don't want to do anything independent of what you're showing me to do. Lord, I don't ever want to do anything in a sense that's not in cooperation with what you would want me to do, whether it's talking to somebody or not talking to somebody. Whether it's I'm supposed to say this or I'm supposed to keep my mouth shut or whether I'm supposed to help in this way or not help in that way or get involved in this or not get involved in this. Lord, I don't want to do anything without your leading, without your cooperation with me. I just want to find out what you want to do and then I want to join together with that in partnership and we should endeavor as Christians, as those connected now to Christ by His Spirit to live and act and to speak and serve in every way that we can in cooperation with the Spirit of God, letting Him show us what He wants to do, letting Him reveal things to us, and then working in partnership with the power of His Spirit to perform it. As we let Jesus through us use our lives and say, okay, Jesus, what do you want to say? And, and I sense you want to say this to this person, so Lord, here's my mouth. What, what would you want me to say to them? And Lord, help me to see what you see. When you look at that person, what do you see, Lord? I know what I see, but Lord, my perspective is not always right. So Lord, what do you see when you look at this person? And Lord, what's on your heart in this situation? And Lord, here are my hands and my feet and my life, and how would you want to use me? That's why Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's the concept of Christianity. Christianity, I was talking to a young man recently, I said, look, Christianity is not an imitation. Remember WWJD it was out years ago or whatever? It was a cute, catchy thing. You know, what would Jesus do? And it was an interesting concept. People in Christian marketing probably made a bunch of money off their bracelets. Probably you bought some. You know, great thing. Anything to make money off of God's people, right? But there was a part of that that was a little bit not, in my estimation, 100% accurate in the sense that what would Jesus do sounds like just imitate whatever Jesus does. The Bible teaches more above and beyond. The Bible teaches not imitation, but impartation. That the life of Christ has been imparted into you and I as a Christian. That the spirit of Jesus Christ himself, who's alive from the dead, dwells in you. And Christianity is not you trying to live out a Christian life. It's being in relationship with Christ and letting Christ live out his life through you. 
as we are now the body of Christ. We are now his representatives and saying, Jesus, in relationship with you, what do you want to do? What do you want to say? Where do you want to go? Here's my life, Lord. It's not I who live, but you live in me. Live through my life, Lord. And letting him use our lives, what a wonderful thing that's available to us, even as Jesus was seeking to honor the Father in that way. We go on here, verse 21. Jesus then says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. So we see another way Jesus mentions being equal with God the Father, and that is he was equal with the Father and his authority and the ability to give life to people whether again that's physically or spiritually eternally. God not only gives life to humans initially, but because he's God, if he sees fit and it's within God's will or God's purposes for his glory, even after someone has died and death has happened, as God, he has the power to raise somebody back to the life. It's his prerogative if he wants to do it. He has the power to restore life to a person once again. And we read the Old Testament there were a few occasions where God, for his purposes, raised somebody back to life. And those instances where God raised somebody to life and there was a resurrection, it was a clear indication that was a divine work of God. Because people knew only God has the power over life and death. Now Jesus, understanding that, therefore says in verse 21, For even as the Father raises the dead, as he did, the Jews knew it, and gives life to them, even so the Son can give life to whom he will. He indicates again that because he is God, equal with the Father, that he himself, working in cooperation with the Father, could perform the same miracles of life-giving power now through his work upon the earth. And as we read through the gospel accounts, we find a few occasions where Jesus indeed does as well, like the Father, raise people back from the dead and give them life again. It happens in Mark chapter 5. Jesus raises Jairus' daughter back from the dead. In Luke 7, the widow of Nain's son who had died, Jesus raised him back from the dead. In the Gospel of John, we'll see chapter 11, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus back from the dead. So Jesus did the same miracles as the Father. And how awesome to know that Jesus desires to and has the power and the authority to give life. To give life. And again, to give life, whether it's physically for health or strength or renewal or healing, that Jesus has the power to give life to whom he will for spiritual life, relationship with God, power over sin. And of course, most importantly, that he has the power to give life in the sense of granting to us that eternal quality of life to experience heaven after death. But I want you to realize is this, as Jesus says there beautifully, the Son gives life to whom he will. The Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen, is a life-giving Spirit. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life, and that more abundantly. He said, the thief, he comes to rob, to kill, and to destroy. That's what the devil seeks to do. The devil wants to rob your life of everything that God intends for it. He wants to kill every good and wonderful thing that could come out of your life. And he wants to steal from you everything that, that would be wonderful and healthy and beneficial. So, great plan if you want to follow the devil. He'll rip you off, kill you, destroy you, and steal things from you. I don't know about you. I think I take something a little different. Jesus says the thief, he wants to rob, kill, and destroy your life. But he says, I've come to give you life. 
I want to give you a life. And not the life that you can imagine. I want to give you a life that will be abundant. Abundant with joy and peace and fulfillment and satisfaction and and adventure and excitement and love and self-control and all these wonderful things that Jesus gives when he gives a life. He has the power to give life and how wonderful that that is the heart of our Lord Jesus, the life-giving power of Jesus. He goes on, verse 22, to say, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor, he says, the Son, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son, Jesus says, does not honor the Father who sent him. So again, here we see a third thing, that Jesus is equal with God the Father in his authority to exercise judgment. He's equal with the Father in his authority to exercise judgment. He indicates here that the Father has entrusted to Jesus the right and the role of judgment over humanity and over mankind. Jesus, on behalf of the throne of God, acts as the appointed representative among the Trinity to function as the presiding judge over the destiny of man and the conditions of mankind. Acts 17 tells us this, verse 30 and 31, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, referring to Jesus, whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So the Bible teaches very clearly that Jesus having been risen from the dead, first of all, is an indication that his life therefore will be the standard whereby all of mankind is judged by. That's what will be measured by. The life of Jesus died and risen from the dead. As well as the fact that more Jesus himself as a person is the one who will preside over the judgment of mankind in regards to what they did. He'll preside as the judge. The Father's entrusted him that role. That is, he'll preside as the judge over whether or not mankind came to him for the forgiveness of their sin as the only Savior. He will judge mankind in regards to whether or not each individual submitted to his lordship and served him with their life. Look, this morning, please let us all remember in this room that the same meek and mild, wonderful Jesus who came at one time in great love and humbly suffered on this earth and let people beat him and spit on him and mock him and crucify him, that that same Jesus has risen from the dead And he's ascended back to the right hand of God the Father and now sits there in authority on heaven's throne as the Savior of the world. For any who come to him repentant of their sin, believing upon who he is and what he has done for them, and that same Jesus is one day going to return to this earth a second time. And he is going to come back to this earth to rightfully set up his throne and kingdom to rule and reign in righteousness. And when Jesus returns the second time, He's returning as a victorious king and as a judge of sin. The Bible tells us in Revelation 19, Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword with which he will strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron as he treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of almighty God. Jesus came once meek and mild as a savior, but he's coming back as a risen glorified king and he's going to be one bad hombre. I promise you. Now is the time to submit to Jesus appreciating what he did when he came in his first coming because when Jesus comes a second time, he's coming back as king of kings and lord of lords as a righteous judge of sin in a rightful way that is necessary as a part of the plan of God. Jesus indicates the father entrusted judgment to him for a purpose as well. Do you see it there in verse 23? He says, the father's entrusted judgment to me that all should honor the son just as they honor the Father. And he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father, Jesus says, who sent him. Now again, if we can illustrate this, in a courtroom, if you've been to one before, when you relate to a judge, a human judge, you usually address him as your honor, right? Judge, your honor, interesting. And typically when you relate to a judge in a courtroom, I hope you do anyway, if not you'll be locked up rather quickly. When you relate to a judge in a courtroom, you show them a level of honor. Because you realize this individual sitting upon his little throne there has my fate in his hands. And he has the power and the authority, whether I agree with him or not, to exercise a level of judgment over my life and there's nothing I can do about it. And so therefore, because I realize of the power and the authority, we show a level of special respect and special honor to that person because they preside as a judge. Well, Jesus is saying here because of the sobering reality that he is the judge of all humanity. He is the judge of everyone's eternal destiny, of all of heaven and earth, in the same way people fearfully honor an earthly judge with much less power and reason for respect. Jesus says, therefore, in verse 23, all should honor the Son. All should honor the Son because He is the one who is a perfect and righteous judge with all power and authority of heaven and earth. So Jesus says to dishonor Him is to directly dishonor the Father who sent Him as the representative of heaven unto this earth, which is a good reminder this morning to ask ourselves in this text, is there any way that you are currently or is there any way that you have been dishonoring Jesus, is there any way right now that you've been dishonoring the Lord Jesus? And I would just say this. I'd be careful of that. I'd be careful of that. And I've sat in courtrooms before and, and watched you know, young men, their punkish little attitudes slumping down in the chair. You know? And I think to myself, you have no idea risking what you're risking. Being trivial like that? Being disrespectful to this guy who can throw your bottom into prison? <laughs> Are you kidding me? And yet sometimes people get kind of casual and trivial with Jesus. They get kind of irreverent with Jesus. Unsaved. But even us as Christians sometimes. And I think we need to be careful. We need to not get overly casual, certainly never disrespectful, because one day you are going to give direct account of your life 
to Jesus. To Jesus himself. The Bible says to us in Hebrews 4, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We should remember that. That's a sobering reality of who Jesus is. Verse 24, he goes on to say, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. Now, look at the connection here. After Jesus indicates he has the power and right to exercise authority and judgment over every soul in mankind, the very next thing he does is what? Verse 24, he gives indication how to avoid coming under the eternal judgment and punishment that we could deserve. He says, if a person hears the word of the Lord, he says there, and then believes who Jesus is and why he was sent to come and die on the cross for our sins, to save lost sinners, to give us eternal life. He says, if we believe that, then we will receive instead, he says, everlasting life. That is eternal life to have access to being with God in heaven after we die. So those who believe in Jesus and what is true about him and trust him for salvation, look at Jesus' words there. He says, if, if you believe those things and believe in me, he says, that person shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In other words, we can avoid the sentence of judgment that we do deserve. And we can go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Important truth that we should never, ever forget as human beings, we all deserve eternal judgment because of the sin that we all commit. We all fail and miss God's mark and, and our sin against a holy God because we all sin and fail makes us, in a sense, offensive to a holy and a righteous God. It makes us unacceptable to be in the presence of God. But yet Jesus declared, remember back in chapter 3, so graciously in regards to that, he said in John 3, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. And he says, and God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but that the world could be saved through him. So Jesus wants us to know, listen, he who believes in him, he said there is not condemned but if you don't believe, you're condemned already. In other words, what the Bible teaches is every person is already under the judgment of God for their own sin. We all are, because we all fail. We all, we all make mistakes. So we're already under the judgment of God. The sentence just hasn't been carried out. The Bible says we're all under the judgment of God for our sin, but God in his great love sends Jesus, makes the way of escape available to all of us, so we can be forgiven, so that we can be cleansed from our sin, and now there's a way of escape from the sentence of the judgment of God by believing in Jesus as our personal Savior for our sin. And if we're willing to receive Jesus Christ's forgiveness for what we've done through what he did and receive his lordship over us, we can pass from a condition of spiritual death into a condition of spiritual life. And we can escape the judgment of God. We can elude what's deserved. We can be released from the penalty and the punishment and not come under judgment. And this morning, can I just say this? For those of us who are Christians, that reality should give us a fresh level of appreciation when life stinks. Because like we saw last time, something much worse could come upon us. Something much worse. And we've eluded that by Jesus. 
And if you're here this morning and you have never come to Jesus personally in this way, listen, that's available for you. And it's imperative that you seriously consider that. That you recognize what's at stake, your eternal destiny. Listen, you don't have to want to offend God. You already have. Because we all have. But the love of God has made a way for you to be forgiven, to be clean, to be freed from the guilt that you carry around in your soul that's plaguing you. You don't even know that's the thing that's plaguing you. And I know it because I did it for 17 years. It plagues a person. And God wants to take that guilt away. He wants to forgive you. He wants to release you from what you deserve and give to you the hope of eternal life through a relationship with His Son. Well, look at verse 25. Jesus then says, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He's granted the Son to have life in Himself and has given Him authority, notice repetition, to execute judgment also because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So it's clear as you read this here, Jesus is in some ways almost reiterating things we've already seen him say. He's for purposeful reasons re-emphasizing repetitively because of the importance what he said for a second time. He restates there in verse 26 that he and the Father again share this equality of life-giving eternal power. He then restates again there in verse 27 repeatedly how he has been received authority to execute judgment over mankind. The reason he's saying in this section now is because he is both the son of God, divine, and the son of man, human, at the exact same time. Jesus becomes the perfect mediator between God and man, divinity and humanity, because he came to this earth in this wonderful way and became somewhat like a a second or a last Adam, the Bible says. He came as a man, undoing what the first Adam destroyed, bringing sin and death into mankind, serving humanity as a representative by living the sinless life as a man that none of us can live and providing a necessary sacrifice for the Father to forgive sin in a righteous way and then dying in the place of humanity in order to redeem mankind back into a relationship with God. And that is why Jesus as the Son of God and the Son of Man has rightful claim to be the righteous judge and preside as the Lord over all of mankind. That is why we read in verse 25 as well as verse 28 and 29 where Jesus speaks of how he will speak to those who have once died and they will all give account to him as Lord and judge because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is is the Lord. Draw your attention to verse 28 and 29 where Jesus says there, notice, don't marvel, he says, the hour coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Jesus here is speaking, yes, somewhat vaguely and generally, but clearly of the reality of two separate eternal destinies. One results in eternal life. The other results in eternal condemnation or separation from God. Now, as you read the word here, Jesus using the term resurrection, don't envision in your mind automatically an isolated event, 
but rather envision in your mind what it's referring to is a category of spiritual existence that will one day be experienced. Again, if we think of just the term resurrection generally, the word resurrection speaks of experiencing life beyond death. Now, when you see Jesus use this terminology here, resurrection of life, resurrection of condemnation, I want you to think in that particular sense of Jesus' use here, he's not per se talking about one universal resurrection event as much as what he's referring to here is two separate categories of spiritual life and existence beyond the death process where people experience life beyond death the saved the believer will experience receiving a glorified eternal body to dwell in heaven with God the unsaved or unconverted receives the judgment they deserve for rejecting Jesus. So the first category of spiritual resurrection, if you would, is for the saved, for those who've trusted Christ. And for those who have done good by accepting Jesus for their sin, Jesus says they will experience the resurrection of eternal life, that is, receiving a glorified body to experience eternal life with God. Even as Jesus himself, as a man, was the first fruits of that harvest, in his own resurrection, he rose back from the dead and he now has a resurrected, glorified body that he now dwells in eternally and he is the first fruits of a new order of mankind who will receive the same that he experienced if our lives are one with him. We as well, 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Corinthians 5, the Bible tells us, will one day receive a glorified resurrection body to dwell forever with the Lord. And that first resurrection happens actually in stages. It happens for the church at the rapture. And for those saints saved during the tribulation period, the Bible speaks as well how they will experience that at Jesus' second coming right before the kingdom age begins. But the wonderful thing is what an incredible glory to know that this first resurrection is available to us who trust in Christ to receive a new glorified eternal body free from sin and sickness and enjoy eternity with our Lord free from pain and sorrow and sickness and death ever again. That's the hope. But the reality is this as well. There is a second category of spiritual existence and that is after death for the unsaved, for those who have rejected Jesus, those who have done evil, Jesus says, in remaining in their sin and rejecting Jesus Christ as Savior, Jesus says they will experience the resurrection of condemnation. That is, they will receive a resurrection body in which eternally they will suffer in eternal torment forever and ever and ever in the lake of fire separated from God. And there will be this existence, this category of existence because of rejection of Christ. Revelation 20 tells us that will happen at the end of the millennium. It says, I saw a great white throne, him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, and which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books, the sea gave up the dead in it. Death and Hades delivered the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That is the other category. 
There are only two. The Bible is very clear. The important thing for all of us here this morning is this. Have you received the work of Jesus for you? Have you allowed the Lord to begin to work in your life? Or are you resisting Him and refusing Him? And I want to just remind us all, heaven has very accurate records. Very accurate records. We can fool everyone else and fool ourselves, but we'll never fool God. And one day we're all going to give account. The question to ask is this, is are you ready? Let's stand. Let's pray together.